A question for you this evening. How is your heart before the Lord? Do you love him? We talked about loving God yesterday and God and our love for him being the primary, the preeminent force in our life. God being our first love. Are you seeking God every day like you can't live without him? Or are you just finding him wherever he fits? So last evening we considered how our love for God needs to be the the preeminent love, our first love, the thing that affects everything we do, everything we say, everything we think. You know, it's, it's frightening how successful we can be in ministry and work and family while being pretty far from Christ. So maybe I should have used scare quotes for successful. Um, But in the stillness, are our thoughts, our affections, our desires, are they drawn to a lot of other things than him? I was challenged by a brother. It was more than a year ago now. He, He said... Don't manufacture a heart for ministry, for religion, for family without a heart for Christ. Guard your heart. Be, be, be careful of manufacturing a heart for missions while missing a heart for Christ. Manufacturing a love for the lost while missing a love for the Lord. Don't forget he is the one who matters. Period. If you, if you really boil it down, it's him for which our hearts were created. Let's look here at Luke chapter 11. We're going to read the first 13 verses of this chapter. Luke 11, <clears throat> starting at verse 1. Now it came to pass... As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? 
Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The chapter before this, chapter 10, um, is where Jesus sent out the 70 to minister and to proclaim. Um, It's also where you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, Or maybe we, it bothers me a little bit that we focus so much on the Samaritan when really I think our lesson is the good neighbor. Um, We have the first and greatest commandment, love God with all you've got. We have the call to minister, to serve, to love your neighbor. And at the end of chapter 10, we have Mary at Jesus' feet, um, a picture of, of love and adoration for God. And then we come into this chapter and we have the disciples asking God, asking Jesus, teach us to pray. These were Jewish men. They knew how to pray. They had been taught uh, from little up how to pray. But there was something in Jesus and how he prayed that they saw they needed. And Jesus took the request of his disciples here that he teach them how to pray. And he took that opportunity to revolutionize their understanding of who they were praying to, who God is. The title I have for the message this evening is 10 Characteristics of God Our Father. Jesus really does a lot more of telling them about God and who he is than he does about telling them how they pray. He says, Father, here. Our Father in heaven. In the first 39 books of the Bible, if you look at the Old Testament, Father is used as a title for God only 15 times. And none of those are references of of praying to God in that way. So through all of the Old Testament, you have 15 examples of Father being used as a title for God, and none of them um, references of praying to God in that way. Then you get to the New Testament. By Matthew 6, you already have Father as a title for God. Through the Gospels, you have it 165 times. And in all but one of those instances, it's when Jesus is teaching his followers. Um, The one time that expands that a little bit is in Matthew 23, 5. Jesus speaks of God as our Father, and it also mentions that there were crowds there, not just his, his closer followers. Followers of Jesus have the privilege of calling God Father. So if you think of all of his attributes, all the attributes of of the creator God, his sovereignty, um, that he is the creator, that he is Lord, that he is king, all of that, and yet we get to call him Father, Papa, Dad, Daddy. It is that personal connection and address. It's been said that with the question, what is a Christian, the richest answer is, 
one who has God as father. I think of John Wesley. I'm just realizing that uh, in a I can't help but refer to John Swartz as John Swartz. I can't just call him John. Um, and I'm not sure what all the reasons are for that. Probably because there for a while at, uh, I was working at Christian Light, and he was working at Christian Light, and John Hartzler was working at Christian Light. So you couldn't just say John. You had to always include a last name. And just now I'm realizing that in a roundabout way, I'm named after John Wesley. Um, don't hold that against me, whatever your opinion of him and Methodism might be. Um, but John Wesley, he he was a, a honor graduate of Oxford University. He was ordained as a clergyman in the Church of England, and he was extremely active in good works. Um, he visited inmates in prison. He distributed food and clothes to the needy. Um, he he worked in in ministering to slum children and orphans. Um, he studied the Bible uh, rigorously. Um, he went to every worship service he could. He, he gave generously. He, he prayed uh, much. He fasted regularly. And he went as a missionary to what was then the um, British colony of Georgia uh, to serve American Indians. And yet after all of this, he was still not a born-again Christian. Um, he wrote in his journal later, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. But his next words in that journal entry were quite telling. That journal entry, it was written after he had truly given his life to God and, and was, was born again in Christ. That entry went on to say, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. I had even the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. He saw that relationship of, of us to God as a father, as the, the core of who we are as Christians, the core of our identity as Christians, that God is our father. In this, in this passage uh, where, where Jesus is teaching, he, he talks about praying for our needs. Um, we often call it the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we would usually go to Matthew when we're going to study it or teach it or quote it. Um, but here we have Jesus saying, you, you pray for what you need. Now, I can logically really struggle with that sometimes because God already knows what you need before you say it. Uh, that's scriptural. Um, God knows what you need before you even say it. And so I can start to think, well, what's the point? Why do I need to come to God? And that question is valuable because it starts to break, break through and get me somewhere and, and start to grasp the reality that the point of prayer is not to get something. It is to be with someone. The point of your prayer is not to get something. It is to be with someone someone. So in this passage, I want to draw out um, 10 characteristics of God our Father that we see um, just sparkle through 
um, this passage. The first characteristic is that he is worthy of all worship. Hallowed be your name. This is less a request for God to be, I mean, excuse me, this is less a, a description of, of God as being holy so much as it's, it's a request for God to be praised. Hallowed be your name. This is, this is us um, this is us praising. This is us calling on, on God to be praised, us exalting his holiness. So Mabel is here plopped right in the middle of, this, well, not the middle, but here in, in the city of Harrisonburg. Um, all these people around. Why do you want God's name to be known here? Because he is worthy to be praised. Why do we want his name known in Shenandoah County, where I live, uh, Rockingham County, over in Highland County? Why do we want it known in D.C. and New York City or in Guatemala or Peru? Because he's worthy to be praised there, too. Why do I want my children to devote themselves to God? Part of it is a love for my children. But greater than that needs to be my desire for God to be praised and worshipped for generations long after I'm unable to on this earth. He is worthy of all worship. The second characteristic, he is the king who is coming. Thy kingdom come. And we long to see him. Do we long to see him or are we just glad that we get to see him after we live our, our lives here? Sometimes we, we can settle into our routines here and we're glad to have God. We're glad to live for God, but we're also just pretty well satisfied to live here. We don't long to see him all that much sometimes. We're just glad we'll get to when when we pass from time to eternity. I think of Matthew 9, where um, uh, disciples of John came to Jesus, and they were asking, why is it that the Pharisees and we, the disciples of John, we fast a lot, your disciples don't. And Jesus said to them, uh, he gave the, the, the statement about, uh, the, the friends of the bridegroom, they can't mourn when the bridegroom is there, uh, but the day will come when the bridegroom goes away and then they'll fast. I look at that and I see that there's a, there's a link between prayer and fasting and, and the second coming, the coming back of Christ. And, and I think a lack of fasting and praying is an indication of contentedness with Christ's absence. I really think that that's a, a pretty big factor in why I'm not very regular in fasting, and frankly, it's not all that common that I know of in our conservative Anabaptist circles in a lot of ways. Uh, just go to most ministers' meetings and you won't find fasting on the schedule. You'll find great big buffets laid out for, for us to eat in between the sessions. 
Um, there are exceptions to that. But for the most part, I really think that our, our lack of fasting and that kind of praying and fasting is an indication of a certain contentedness we have with Christ's absence. Do you really long for the day your faith is made sight? Or are you just glad it's coming when it comes? When my children know that we're going somewhere interesting, um, well, we've got to the point where we know we can't tell them too far in advance or they're not going to sleep very well leading up to it. Because they, they can just hardly wait. For me, usually when we're going away somewhere, it's just more of a, well, that'll happen when it happens. We need more of that childlike anticipation. We can just hardly wait till our faith becomes sight when kingdom come, when his kingdom is, is come in its fullness. That kingdom come. He is the king who is coming. The third characteristic, he is the giver of all good gifts. Give us this day our daily bread. That doesn't resonate very well with us. Um, I heard Brother Dave Fry from Ontario. He shared a message on, on how hard it is for us to honestly pray that in, in a way that, that resonates. These are people who would have been hearing the story of manna, Exodus 16, um, from little up in a way that even we in all our Sunday schools didn't have it. Um, these, these were men who grew up as Jewish boys into Jewish men. Um, and, and the daily provision of the manna of God. Prayer. See, see I can't pray, give, give me this day my daily bread. Because, well, I know that we have at least a couple loaves at the house already. Um, We've got a pantry um, with all sorts of goodies in it, really. We need the reminder daily that all good things come from God. I'm not saying it's wrong that, that we have multiple loaves of bread um, tonight before we, before we wake up in the morning. Um, but we need a, we need the reminder daily that all good things come from God because our pride would lead us to think otherwise. Um, are, we, are we so often prayerless in our day because we have allowed the idea to sprout that we are self-sustaining? And maybe not self-sustaining, um, but... We just we think the the flywheel of life will keep spinning. So I don't think that I'm giving myself the strength to get up every morning, or that I am the one who is giving myself the strength and mental acuity to to hold a job. But I do generally start to think that well tomorrow I will have the strength to get up in the morning, and tomorrow I will have the uh, mental acuity to do my job, which means that. Um, two Fridays from now, uh, 
paycheck will be direct deposited into my account. So no, I don't really at a deep root level think that I am self-sustaining and that I am somehow the one supplying all this goodness. I just think that it's going to keep on coming. I just assume that the flywheel of life will just keep rolling and that I'll have what I need. The, the inertia of my current fortunes will continue. If, if we learn anything in the midst of the craziness of last year and this year so far and a pandemic and all of that, if we learn anything from all this, I pray that it is we are foolish to assume the flywheel of life just keeps turning. And that truly our daily needs are supplied by God. The problem, I think, is less... It's not that I think I give myself the health to earn, but that I begin to assume that the health and earnings will, will, will continue. And so my trust begins to shift from God, the giver of those things, to the things he has given, to the health itself, to my employer. My, my, my focus shifts from, and my trust then shifts from the giver to the gifts. But God is the giver of all good gifts. Give us this day our daily bread. Characteristic number four, he forgives our sins. Forgive us our sins. The beauty and majesty of the amazing mercy of God. And the more intimately we connect to God, the more we see our neediness of his mercy. The closer you get to God, the more your eyes will be open to the little specks of dirt and unholiness that need to be cleaned out of your life. He forgives our sins. We'll move on. A sermon could be preached on probably each of these characteristics. So we're skimming along the surface in some ways. Uh, characteristic number five, he leads our lives. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, of course, James 1.13 makes it plain that God does not lead us into temptation. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. But he is the one who leads us through life. He, is, he holds our hand through life. And so really what we're asking is, lead my life well. Lead me to the best places. Help me not to go wandering off to the side and into the brambles of temptation. He leads our lives. Characteristics six and seven, I'm, I'm going to kind of lump together here. Um, verses five through eight is, is where we see them. He has all authority and he is approachable. God has all authority and he is approachable. This, these verses, I, they fascinate me. Partly I just take a certain amount of amusement in picturing the situation. Um, food was not as readily available for um, the original audience of this, of this teaching. Um, 
give us this day our daily bread was a little easier for them to pray in some ways, you pretty much were able to bake the bread you needed for that day if, if your life was going the way, going well. Um, you didn't have big stockpiles of bread. Um, food was just not as readily available in the, in the surplus that, that we have it now. You bake enough bread for the day. And so we have this, this picture here of a man showing up on a journey to his friend's house and he needs sustenance. He needs something to eat. And in first century Palestine, it was a big deal to be hospitable. And so this man had two options, two, two bad options, really. Option one was to be a poor host and not give food to his traveling friend who came and, and needed food. Or bad option number two, go get food from a neighbor at midnight. Now, think about the living situation here. Um, you have the neighbor that he goes and talks to, says... Um, my children are asleep in my bed. Think about the, the environment here. You, your house, your dwelling place would have been a room. You would have had a common room. And so uh, at our house, we have kind of three bedtimes. The youngest one goes to bed at his time and the older child goes to bed later. And then my wife and I go to bed later than that yet. Um, at least when things go the way we want them to. Think of a family in a one-room house here, and so you finally get the, uh, the baby who's not even walking yet. You, you get him to go to sleep, and then a little bit later you finally got the toddler uh, wound down and sleeping, and then you've got the children who had to finish up their uh, whatever chores and thinking about the school they did that day and you finally get them wound down and finally you get your things wrapped up and you and your wife are asleep and everybody's asleep all in the same room and it's quiet and bang, 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 bang. Here's someone at your door. And, and I, I find great amusement in... Um, In verse 5, he says, Friend, lend me three loaves. So I get this picture of this man sleeping peacefully, his children all around him um, asleep, and all of a sudden, Friend! I don't, I don't think he was thinking friend in response. And he, he would have had more the, Oh, don't bother me. Um, and it says that he's not going to get up for the friend but he's going to get up because friend and, and it keeps on going and keeps on going and, and the shamelessness of that neighbor pounding on his door saying I, I need food he's going to get up not for friendship but to deal with just the, the shameless abandon with which his neighbor is pounding on his door and saying, hey, you, you need to give me something. Now, often when we read um, parables, we try to place everybody. Um, be careful 
when you do that, uh, if you try to say, for example, find God in every parable, um, the, the God-like character that Jesus uses is, doesn't always have all the characteristics of God. It's, it's plain that God, um, God doesn't supply us out of um, exhaustion with us. God doesn't supply us because, well, this person just won't shut up, and so I'm going to give them what they need to shut them up. When we have examples like this, or the um, the widow who went to the unjust, um, the unjust uh, lord or judge, um, find yourself in the story. We're the man outside the door that's knocking, and we're supposed to be learning about the the shamelessness and the the uh, the boldness with which we come to God. We we don't get. We don't allow embarrassment to seep in. We don't allow. We don't allow ourselves to hold back from approaching God. We come to God boldly, shamelessly, with with absolute abandon. With He has what we need, and we just need to go to Him to get it. Imagine you had the guts to go knocking at midnight. The the boldness, the shamelessness, the, the yeah, just the, the guts it takes to do that. Now, God has everything we need. He is sovereign. He has power over all things and authority over all things. And he is approachable. When you combine an all-powerful, approachable God with us being, being shameless and, and, and bold in approaching him, why is there anything in life that we can't deal with. If God is who he is, and we take this lesson of we approach him no matter what. Don't get embarrassed. Don't hold back. Go to God. The, the, the point I want you to take from this is the boldness with which you approach an approachable God. See, we're not supposed to apply our human logic to approaching God. Um, God is looking out over the, the entire universe. He's working his will. He's uh, filtering the temptations facing 8 billion people or whatever's on the earth now. Um, and well, I'm going to come and say, excuse me, I need you to come over here and influence this bolt I sheared in the project I was working on. Or I need you to influence um, my car that doesn't want to start. And and human logic would start to say, well, leave God alone and let him focus on more important things than my little problem right now. There are two flaws with that kind of thinking. One is God is more powerful than we can comprehend. He can very easily deal with filtering the temptations of 8 billion people around the world and making my car start. And simply, God commands us to bring him everything. God is approachable, and we come with our daily needs boldly, shamelessly. You are not interrupting God, and there is no shame in coming to God and asking his power and presence in the little things of your life. It's, in fact, an act of worship when you come to God for him to supply even the smallest needs in your life. 
our Father delights in revealing himself to those who are bold enough to bother him. And, and I use the word bother there on purpose. We can have that mindset sometimes. Like, I won't bother God with this. So you're at work and you call your wife to ask for uh, the account number you left on the paperwork there at home and you say, how are things going? And she says, well, it's been a big morning and there are some things weighing pretty heavy right now, but I'm not going to bother you with them. And of course, as a husband, your response will be, oh, good, that's the last thing I need right now is you bothering me with the stuff happening there, right? So many reasons you're not going to say that. Um, but really the main reason is that you delight that she comes to you with the things that are heavy on her heart. You delight in the fact that, that you're the one she's turning to when things are heavier, that when she does have a need, and, and you delight in the fact that you're able to, to help. Another way we can think of it is, is parent to child. Remember, God, our Father. When your son or daughter is facing something heavy, do you want them to hold back from coming to you and dumping out the contents of their heart? I mean, really, they come in and my emotional desk is covered with my broken thoughts and feelings and concerns and, and now they're going to come in and spill all their stuff there too? No, that's not how we feel. We're willing to shove a bunch of stuff around and coax them and urge them to be open and pour out the burden of their heart. Approach God with the openness and abandon that you hope and want your children to come to you with and their burdens. You take your burdens to God with the same, same abandon and openness that you want your children to come to you when they have a burden and when they have, when they have a weight in their life and a problem the same attitude you feel toward them and how much you want them to come to you and, and, and be open about it, that is the same attitude you need to have about going to God. The God of the universe is approachable to you. He's invited you to unburden your heart completely to him. And, and we can feel like we shouldn't bring the small things, the mundane things to God. Put yourself in the shoes of the man knocking on the door here in Luke 11. He's not even saying, there's a robber in my house, or, or my wife is in labor, or my daughter fell and broke her arm. He's coming and pounding on the door of his neighbor at midnight saying, hey, I need some toast. We can pray about cancer at one end of the spectrum, and we can pray about a common cold on the other end of the spectrum. God wants it all. And then we have these, these last three um, characteristics uh, sort of put together here, for, all from the, the ask, seek, knock verses. Ask, seek, knock. These verses, frankly, seem, can seem untrue to our experience. Ask, seek, knock. But I did ask. I don't feel like I got a, a good answer. I did look, and I don't feel like I found it. I did knock, and that door stayed shut. That can be how we feel sometimes. 
Characteristic number eight is God is all good. I know that I mess up in how I relate to and provide for my children. We look at these verses and what Jesus says about God the Father. God is always good and he always gets it right. Characteristic number nine, he is all wise. God always gets it right because he is all wise. He knows it all. He knows every angle. When I play chess, which I don't do very often, I can never think more than a couple of moves ahead of where I am. Grandmasters have the entire board and, and sequence of moves coming up memorized. And they even have several sequences of moves visible in their head because they have plans for every way their opponent can respond to the move they just made. I find that amazing um, to, to see, to see a, a, like a video of a chess grandmaster um, and, and how they can, they can take on multiple opponents and always remember where they are in each game. And it just blows my mind to think of somebody having that kind of a view of the big picture. God's view and understanding of everything blow the chess pieces off of those boards. God's, God not only, to, not, to, to use a different uh, analogy, God not only sees the whole picture, he sees every brush stroke or every pixel of that picture. God sees it all. He knows how everything is hooked together. He is all wise. And so he gets it right because he is all good and he is all wise. And then the 10th characteristic that we see just in this short passage, he's all loving. Here we have the spirit. Now, okay, if, if you go to Matthew 7, you have a similar, um, similar set of verses to this. So you have the ask, ask, seek, knock verses. And I can... I can tend to prefer the Matthew 7 version because it says in there, Jesus at the end um, uh, of, the, of this little teaching, in that case, what he says is, if, if a heavenly father knows how to give good gifts, if, if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts, so much more doesn't the heavenly father give good good gifts, good things. And I, I can really like the idea of good things. But Jesus here says it a little different. He says, if, if an earthly father is able to give good things, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? But wait, I just asked for bread from my father, or I just asked for a fish from my father, and he's giving me the Holy Spirit. I wanted bread or a fish. But consider the hugeness of what Jesus says here about how God will answer and provide. You ask for wisdom, God says, I will provide you my spirit of wisdom. You ask for help loving the person who wronged you, God won't just pour a little extra love into your love tank. He says, I'll give you my spirit who produces in you love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. 
In Exodus 33, when, when God's spirit would meet, Moses had to go into the tent and the cloud moved over it and the people would stand in silence and all thousands of people because there's a man over there who's meeting with God. Now we are the tent. Go to your room, pray to your father for the hallowing of his name, for the coming of his kingdom. When that's a reality, what flows out of the church and through each of you? This is just a small picture of who God is and some of his characteristics. And yet, we can start to get a grasp of that one who we love, that one who we are called to love above all else and before all else. We serve an amazing God. I said that the the ask, seek, knock can, can ring a little bit untrue to us sometimes. It, it almost doesn't feel like it, it fits our experience sometimes. And a lot of that is because we don't see the whole picture. And we don't see, um, we, we can fall into that trap of, God, I asked you for bread and a fish, and you're giving me your spirit. Um, and and we, we, we fail to see that he's meeting our need at a much deeper level than we were even evil, we were even able to to comprehend or ask. I want to read a, a poem to close here called The Stone and the Snake. My father bade me come and said, Ask me for what you need, and spread before me all your heart. Seek me for every true desire and see if I will ever fail to love you perfectly with treasures of my boundless store, my heart. And keep on knocking, though I do not sleep, I have my reasons for delay, and I delight to hear you pray. But should you need an anchor for your boat, but, lured by hunger, ask for bread, I'll mark your need, and lest you seaward float, give you a heavy stone instead. Or if you need to drain a viper's fang, a healing antidote to make, but ask for useless fish to ease the pang, I will discern and give the snake. O precious child, think not, because I meet your needs with love by laws beyond your grasp, it is vain for you to pray, as if the gain of snake and stone were no reply to your desire. Dear child, your cry does open treasuries and shake the heavens. I bid you come and take these keys and all my store unlock my heart to ask and seek and knock. God knows our deepest needs and he is faithful in meeting them. And he wants us to bring to him everything. And when we do, He's got it covered. To quote Brant, God's got this.